Reality Church is a church striving to be biblical. We pray that this sermon would help you in your personal walk. Be blessed. Amen. We began last week uh, laying the foundation for what we're going to learn this week. Um, and it's amazing to me how how often Sunday school is also a, a primer and a prep for what we do in this pulpit. Um, talking about brotherly love. Um, Matthew Henry said something very simple yet very profound about brotherly love. He said, brotherly love is still the distinguishing badge of every true Christian. Matthew Henry was a great commentator of of the entire Word of God. I use his commentary quite often, as a matter of fact. But what he says here is a simple quote. Brotherly love is still the distinguishing badge of every true Christian. It's so simple, yet it embodies exactly what John is saying in this portion of text that we've been working on these, these past two weeks, or last week and this week. It truly embodies one of Christ's main foundational doctrines that he left his apostles with. It's what they established the early church upon. So, let's dig into it. Let's dig into this word. And let's see exactly what God has to say. Now hear the infallible, inspired word of God. 1 John 2. Verses 9 through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. And whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word that it is infallible, inspired, and inerrant. We can count on what it says. It's not just a bunch of words written down by a bunch of different men uh, trying to interact with you in some way. No, God, it is inspired by the Holy Spirit, breathed out from your very mouth. It is what you have said, and we trust your word. And we know that your word should be the rule of faith and practice for every church that claims your name. And we pray that we would follow it faithfully. God, Remove the veil that we may see you clearly revealed in these scriptures and something more about you that maybe we don't know. Maybe something that will help us in our walk. Father God, we ask that the path would be illuminated, that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Holy Spirit, illuminate it so that we may retain it and use it. Sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. In Christ's name, amen. These are awesome verses, and they have great truths for the Christian. And let's break down these verses in context so we can see what we can learn, okay? Let's start with verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So let's break down that statement and see what truth is there. It says, whoever says he is in the light. What does in the light mean? 
We've taught this before. We know what in the light means. Based on the biblical view, in the light would directly equal in Christ. If we are in Christ, we are in the light. And how can we back this up? How can we prove that? Well, John 8, 12 says, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So those who walk in the light are in Christ. They've repented and trusted in Christ. They have believed the gospel. So they know that Christ is light and they are in the light. Basically, if we were to kind of put it in different terms, we begin this verse with John saying, if you claim to be a Christian, that's what he's saying. When he says, if, if we say that we're in the light, we're saying, I am a Christian. So he begins this with, if you claim to be a Christian. And the second part of this statement is, and hates his brother is still in darkness. The first step here is to see John's context. We need to see John's context. We definitely need to see who he is talking to. Now, we've established that in, in, in this, in this uh, study that we've done on 1 John. We've established that this is written to believers that John himself taught. And possibly he was the one who gave him the gospel message to actually call them to repentance and, and to see them saved. So he really cares about these people. That's who he's talking to. But now he is about to talk about their interaction with another group of people. A very specific group. A very specific group that's outlined in one word. Brothers. Hates his brother. In the original language... This word brother means in the same religious community, fellow Christians. A great way to describe this group of people as one group, I think, would be to say that they are the church, the big C church. So John is talking about loving those of the church. It could be, and I think we could probably line it up with the rest of Scripture and we could see that this is probably true. It could be that there were many disputes happening among brothers in Christ in the early church. It could be, right? It seems that that's uh, kind of continuing, right? We see it across all lines. There's so many disputes. And I want you to understand that these past two weeks, have been some of the most convicting to me sermons that I've ever preached. So I want you to understand what's being done in your pastor and I hope it's being done in you as well. We have, they've had, they, they had disputes, so John is trying to, in this case, help them to see some important things about brother, who your brother is, how you should treat your brother. 
In order to see the scope of this, I think it would be very beneficial to review some very important aspects of the church. Some important things about the church. Um, I consulted many trusted um, Orthodox sources to help me with this endeavor, uh, and I wanted to uh, I wanted to see more about what studied men say to help us define and describe the amazing group of people that can be called the church. Lewis Burkhoff, in his Systematic Theology, describes the church in this way on page 480. Yes. It is a book with over 400 pages, and I wasn't even at the end of it. Lewis Burkhoff says, The church forms a spiritual unity of which Christ is the divine head. It is animated by one spirit, the spirit of Christ. It professes one faith, shares one hope, and serves one king. It is the citadel of the truth. And God's agency in communicating to believers all spiritual blessings. And I really want you to hear this last sentence. As the body of Christ, it is destined to reflect the glory of God manifested in the work of redemption. What an amazing definition. He says so much more than just... All them people who are saved, right? He says so much more in this, in this statement. It's an amazing definition. I wish more people still talk like this. We are the manifestation of the work of redemption because we are the fruit of the great work of Christ. We are, as the church, the Big C Church, we are a manifestation of what Christ has done to save those who were lost. And we continue manifesting His love shed forth on the cross by doing the work and mission of the church, which is simply, what is the work and mission of the church? Is it to have cool events and have a big church? No, it is to spread the gospel. What is the Great Commission? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are to make disciples. We are to spread the gospel. That's the work and mission of the church. Not numbers. Not to look cool. To share the gospel. In looking and, 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 and digging into several different really good sources... The church really exists in two forms. There is the invisible church and the visible church. And these two bodies, hear me, hear me well, the invisible church and the visible church. And these two bodies are not necessarily the same groups of people. There are tares that grow among the wheat. The, uh, the Puritans called them false converts or the almost saved. There are false converts and outright sinners who attend local churches, which are 
the visible church. The local church is the visible church. This is a visible church. It's part of the visible church. The invisible church is not as easily identified as the visible. Let's look at both. The visible church, what would be called in Scripture in the original language, the ecclesia, or the assembly, is what we can see. People who come into church houses on Sundays and Wednesdays, I think it would benefit us to look at the uh, 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith in modern English to help us truly understand it. Uh, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, the 26th chapter, is on the church. Uh, so the 26th chapter, the sixth paragraph says, The members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly displaying and demonstrating in and by their profession and life their obedience to the call of Christ. They willingly agree to live together according to Christ's instructions, giving themselves to the Lord and to one another by the will of God with the stated purpose of following the ordinances of the gospel. So it's a group of people that are saved that come together and, and, and choose to follow what the word of God says. That is what a true definition of the visible church should be. That is the gathered church. And may I say, every church should be the gathered church. The group that we need to be a part of is the gathered church, the local church. These people that we worship with many times are some of the closest people to us. We talked about that this morning, about the relationship between Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. How they didn't just do ministry together. They did life together. They were best friends. They helped each other. They held each other up. That's what the local church does. That's the relationship we should have with each other as people. Believe it or not, some of the people that are part of these groups are not believers in Christ as biblically described. That's going to happen. Especially the larger the church is, you're going to see that more often. The 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 26, paragraph 5, which is the paragraph before, says, In exercising the authority entrusted to him, the Lord Jesus, through the ministry of His Word, by His Spirit, calls to Himself, out of this world, those who are given to Him by His Father. They are called so that they will live before Him in all the ways of obedience that He prescribes for them in His Word. Those who are called, He commands to live together in local societies or churches for their mutual edification and the fitting conduct of public worship. That he requires of them while they're yet in the world. It's a command to gather with the church. It's a command to follow what the word of God says. And guess what? If you are part of a local church, it is so much easier to follow what the word of God says. Accountability. People that you're doing life with doing the same things that you're doing. It makes living a holy Christian life 
so much easier if you are part and you dig into your local church. Yet, we love all those that we gather with. Even if there are tares among the wheat. Guess what we don't have the right to do? Are you ready for this? You may not hear this in some churches. You don't have the right to decide whether you think somebody is a tear or they're a wheat. You don't have the right to say this is a believer and this is a non-believer in our church. You don't have that right to say that. What are you called to do? To love the members of the local church. Hopefully membership requirements are stringent enough that any voting member is definitely not a tear. Because most tears can't follow the stringent guidelines of, of, of true biblical membership like we do it here. But even if they make it through, we don't have the right to assume either side. We, as the body, the ecclesia, the assembly, are to love the people that are inside our building. And what's one way we can love them, even if they're tares? We have gospel-centered interactions with all of them. And we pray that all are in Christ. The better assuming that we could do in our churches is to assume that nobody's heard the gospel. So that we give them the gospel. You will hear the gospel from me until you are sick of it. Why? Because that's what I'm called to preach. If I, give up, if I get up here and I never give you the gospel, I am not doing my job. Get rid of me. Get somebody else. And I'm serious about that. We must love the people that are in our building. Then we look at the invisible church. That is the body of Christ. The bride of Christ. We as a church confess the Apostles' Creed in all of our services. Our Sunday morning, we, we confess the Apostles' Creed during our Lord's Supper as we say and confess what we believe. We confess the, Lord, the Apostles' Creed on Wednesday nights during our teaching services as a confession of what we believe. In it, we state that we believe in the Holy Christian Church. What is that? It's not just our church. That's the universal church. That's all of them, right? We believe in that. Why do we believe in it? Because that's what Christ set up. That's what He intends for believers is the, to be a part of the universal church, the Holy Christian Church. The 1689 London Baptist Confession, the very first paragraph of the 26th chapter on the church, it says, the Catholic, and that's what, that's what is actually in the very original Apostles' Creed that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. We use Holy Christian Church to avoid confusion, but that word Catholic doesn't mean a denomination. That word Catholic actually means universal. That's what it means. The Roman Catholic Church decided to use that. Because they thought they were the only church. But guess what? It means the universal church. The Catholic, that is universal, church may be called invisible with respect to the internal work of the Spirit and truth of grace. It consists of the full number of the elect who have been, are, or will be gathered 
into one under Christ, her head. The church, listen to this, this is beautiful. The church is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him who, who feels all in all. The invisible church is the body of Christ. It is the bride of Christ. It is the fullness of him who feels all in all. So we see that the visible and so we see a, a visible church and an invisible church. We know that the invisible church is the true justified church, right? The big C church all over the world. The visible may have a mix of believers and non-believers. It's going to happen, especially the bigger numbers you have. Do we love the unbelievers that we may see attending our church differently? Truly, we aren't God. He knows if they have a new heart. And we may not. So we cannot really make that judgment in many cases. So, what is our reaction to that? We love the visible church. We use scripture as our guide. Biblical love for others doesn't necessarily look like uh, what the world would define as brotherly love. It looks differently. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. Where it tells us what love is, right? 1 Corinthians 13 says this in verse 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That's an excellent help to us to check our love for others, for our brotherly love. Scriptural love for, for others has these characteristics. First, we talked about this one this morning. It's patient. That even though they may not be where I am, I'm going to love them anyway and be patient as they get there. It's kind. Wouldn't we all do better if we just lived a life that was a little bit more kind to others? It's not envious. I don't look at you and desire what you have because God has blessed me with so much. It's not boastful. What does that mean? It's not a braggart. I'm awesome. I do God's stuff. You don't do it as well as me. I'm awesome. I'm better than you at it. That's boastful. That's not something we're going to do. You won't, if you hear that from this pulpit, elders, you are welcome to pull me to the side. And I urge you to do so. It's not arrogant. There's too much arrogance in pulpits around this world. I'm a sinner saved by the same grace that you're saved by. God has just blessed me with the calling to preach. That's it. It's not rude. You know what rude is. It's not loving. 
Listen to this one. This one's tough. Y'all ready? It's tough for us, especially us who love the Bible very, uh, a whole lot. It's flexible. It doesn't insist on its own way is the way it puts here. But it's flexible. But it's flexible without compromising foundational truth. What flexibility are we talking about? Something me and uh, Brother Jesse talked about this morning. When we get to our new building, he's going to bring the carriage so we can have some coffee. I'm flexible on that. We're not going to be the coffee baller church. We're not going to be making lattes out there. You know what I'm saying? In our skinny jeans, right? We ain't going to be making lattes in our skinny jeans. We'll have a coffee bar. I don't mind that. I don't mind having coffee at our new church. But listen, <laughs> we need to be flexible on those things. If it's not a foundational truth, be flexible. Listen to others' opinions, okay? It's not irritable. This one's tough. And this is something that I get convicted about myself. I can't take what's happening outside of this building that's negative and affecting me and let it affect how I treat you when I come in this building. So that's something that I'm convicted about because I've always been told that I can't fake my face. Every boss I've ever had says, you just cannot hide how you feel. Every boss I've had has said that. And I'm like, look, I'm sorry. I just put it out there. If, I get, if, it, if it makes me mad, you will instantly see my eyebrows go up and you will know that I'm mad. Correct, uh, Brother Gizzard? You've known me longer than almost anybody in this building. Can't hide my feelings. But I can't take what's out there and let it affect me how I treat you. Not resentful. Another convicting point for me. I can't hold a grudge. We aren't supposed to hold a grudge with the visible church and the invisible church. Don't hold a grudge. It's worthless. Number 10 is does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Churches across America, across the world, please listen. We do not rejoice in wrongdoing. We do not affirm sinfulness and sinful lives. That is not loving. It says it in the scriptures. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. And then it says what it does rejoice in. It rejoices in the truth. Where do we find the truth? In the Bible. Biblical truth. Is it subjective? No, it's objective. It is truth. Yes, America. Yes, world. Yes, us. There is such a thing as the truth. It is written down in Scripture because the truth is what God has said. And then it says... If we could all take this as our motto as we, as we embark on a new journey into a new church. Love bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. And endures all things. Let us, with each other, have that kind of love. 
So this is how we love our brothers and sisters in the visible church with us, right? We use what scripture has said is love, right? Not, not worldly love where we affirm things that are sinful, where we don't tell the truth, where our mood determines how I treat you, or if I even communicate with you is determined on how I feel. That is not how the Bible describes love, so that's not how we can love the visible church that we are a part of. We must use what God has said as love. So to hate our brothers would be to treat them the opposite of what God has said love is. To not be patient. To be irritable. irritable to, be, to be rude and, and, and arrogant and boastful to them. That is hating your brother. To affirm people in sinfulness is to hate them. To say there is no such thing as truth. You do your truth. You do you, girl. Is not love. It is hate. And what does that make it? That makes it sin. If you hate your brother, this is living in darkness, which is truly living in sin. That is why I'm so adamant about it. Verse 10. Yes, we've just done the first verse so far. Verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Brotherly love is one of the characteristics of abiding in Christ. As we have seen in Scripture, it actually helps us be identified as in Christ. This is how you will know, right? Love one for another. We are a body of people that loves one another. And I want you to understand this. Listen to this. It, it blew my mind when this thought came to me. And I, as I was reading and I just see, you know, and I start thinking about these other things. I'm like, this is so true. Listen to this. We are truly the only group organization, club, society, anything on earth that is identified by loving one another. The only one. The only group in the entire world that that is a founding principle that identifies us, that we love one another. So we as individuals must strive to love each other. We should pray for God's help in this. Why? Because we can't do it on our own. The Holy Spirit is the only way we can see this work done in us. That's it. Through the work of the Holy Spirit. The next phrase says, In Him there is no cause for stumbling. In who? In who there is no cause for stumbling? In the one who loves his brother. So let's talk about the stumbling. How could we have no cause for stumbling? Well, first of all, in ourselves. To love our brother makes it impossible to hate him. You can't hate somebody you love. Not possible. It keeps us from sinful anger with our brother. We can't have sinful anger with our brother if we love them. It also gives, helps us to have no cause for stumbling in other brothers. 
You know, those, those people who are in my circle, right? They may join us in hatred if we allow hate for brother to spew out. And listen, if you hate your brother, you're probably going to talk to somebody about it and try and get somebody on the bandwagon with you. And guess what you're doing? You're causing them to sin as well. And it is a no cause for stumbling in brothers in general. Because if we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're not going to interact in, in a way with them that might cause them to sin as well. And, re- and return that, to- that type of, of treatment. Our love or hate for brothers and sisters does not just affect us. It affects those we interact with. It really does. Let's go to verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I want to take this whole verse together. Let's take this verse in whole. Because darkness is synonymous with another word. Darkness is synonymous with sin. So I want to read this again. I'm going to switch those two words. Just to give us an idea of what we're really seeing when we see darkness. That's not how it's written. But I want us to catch the fact that darkness is sin. And let us see how serious that is. But whoever hates his brother is in sin. And walks in sin. And does not know where he is going because the sin has blinded his eyes. Doesn't that give it a little perspective? To love your brother is sin. Plain and simple. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now does that mean we don't love those who are not in Christ? No. We love them in a very specific way. And sure, we're gonna, we, we possibly... As Brother Jesse talked about this morning with a group of Marines, how they have a camaraderie, a love for each other, an affection for each other. We're going to have those types of affections for, for family members or friends who may be lost and not in Christ. We're, we're going to have sometimes affectionate feelings for them. But this is a different kind of love that we're talking about here. Those who are not in Christ, we love them by giving them the truth. We give them the gospel. We call them to repentance. We don't affirm their sinful life. And we share the eternal truths of Christ with them. That's how we love those who are not in Christ. So in summing up these things, I think we need to make some distinctions. And have a a, a very strong application. First, let's make this distinction. Who do we love? First of all, and I think it's the proper order, we love brothers and sisters in Christ in our local church. We love them as God tells us to love them. We love them as God has laid out in Scripture. Secondly, we love brothers and sisters in Christ in other biblical local churches around the world. Y'all ready for this? Even if we disagree on secondary issues. 
we still love them. Thirdly, this one's hard. This one's hard. We love people who may be deceived. People who are in possibly heretical churches. Who don't have the characteristics of salvation because they have not been taught what true salvation is. Who maybe worship the wrong God in a way. We love them. How? Uncompromising truth. We don't compromise. We love them with kindness and respect. And lastly, who do we love? The lost. So in case you didn't catch what I was laying down there when uh, I say, who do we love? I could have said it in one word. Everybody. We love everybody. Secondly, how do we love? First of all, we love those who are in the Big C Church as family. Christ said that we love them as he has loved us. So we love them as Christ loves us. Secondly, we love the universal church with action, by prayer and support when we can give it. That's what we do. Right now, praying for people whose churches have been burned in Canada, people in in Africa who are being murdered outside of their churches, people in China whose underground churches are being busted into and they're being arrested for not having the proper papers. We pray for them and we support them when we can. People in Myanmar who I read some stories. Uh, I got the uh, Heart Cry Missionary Society uh, magazine and it actually had, they've only been able to get some stuff out of Myanmar from some of their missionaries and some of the pastors that they support. And the things that they're writing as it got worse and worse, it just it was like, we don't know if we'll be able to walk out of our house and not be killed. Or yesterday, a truck full of military came to the house next door and kicked the door open and took everybody out, and we don't know where they're at. We pray for those people. Thirdly, we love the deceived by calling them out of falsehood with scriptural Christianity. And we do this with what two, what two uh, traits? Kindness and respect. That's how we do it. And fourth, we love the lost by giving them the gospel of Christ, not by affirming their sin. So now that we see who and how to love, I want to dig deeper into an application of this particular passage. So how should we apply this? The 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 26, and paragraph 14 says, Every church and all of its members are obligated to pray continually for the good and prosperity of all churches of Christ in every place. They must also, also at every opportunity, 
within the limits of their stations and callings, exercise the gifts and graces to benefit every church. Also, when churches are raised up by the providence of God, insofar as they enjoy opportunity and favorable circumstance for it, they should have fellowship among themselves for their peace, growth, and love, and mutual edification. Isn't that a crazy thought in today's world? The two churches get together and just edify each other. And that's something we're going to strive for when we get into the community we're moving to. So we see two, two keys here. We, uh, we apply this brotherly love first in prayer. Ephesians 6.18 says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Listen to this. Making supplication for all the saints. So we pray for the universal church worldwide. We do. We pray for all of them. Why? Because they're our brothers and sisters. Also, we love them in support. 3 John 8 says, Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So we, when we can, we reach out a hand, a physical hand, and help. 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 27, which is uh, the communion of saints, Paragraph 1 says, All saints are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by His Spirit and by faith. Although this does not make them one person with Him, they have fellowship in His graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. Since they are united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obligated to carry out these duties, both public and private, in an orderly way to promote their mutual good both in the inner and outer aspects of their lives. So we, we, we exercise brotherly love in graces, in the graces of God. John 1.16 says, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. How much grace have we received from Christ? We are saved and justified by the grace of God through Jesus Christ in our lives, right? And then we take that grace as an example, and we give it to others. That's why many times when, uh, if you ever come to me and, and, and are concerned about something going on in the church, what's one of the first things I'll say to you? We need to have grace here, right? Why? Because we've been given grace. Now, are we going to we gonna allow somebody to come in here and teach some heresy? Or do some things that are out of order with the Word of God? <laughs> no. The grace that we'll have then is to escort them out the door. But we have grace with each other. And also, and this is something we touched on this morning in Sunday school as well. We show brotherly love in sufferings. Philippians 3.10 That I may know Him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Christ suffered and died to save us. And Christ promised in this life we will face tribulation and suffering. And in those times, 
we join together in brotherly love. We link arms with those who are suffering. We are to pray for churches around the world. We support our brothers and sisters in Christ whenever possible and in whatever way we can. We share in God's graces together. We worship together. That's a grace of God. We sing together. That's a grace of God. We disciple one another. What a grace of God. We repent together. One of the ultimate graces of God. And we take the Lord's Supper when we are gathered together. That's when you take the Lord's Supper, when you're gathered together. That's one of His graces. We also partake in sufferings with each other. We uphold one another. We help where we can. We provide physical needs when able. If you know somebody's suffering and can't cook supper, and you have supper that you could cook for them, guess what? You do it. Does that mean that you're, does that help you be saved? No. It's an evidence of brotherly love. Do you take a picture and put it on Facebook? No, don't do that. The Bible says, not, don't, let, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. Don't even, don't do your things before men. Do it before God and give out of the abundance of what He has blessed you with. Soapbox. So let's hope box moment, in case you guys are wondering. Why do we do these things? Because we are the body of Christ. That's why. We are the very bride of Christ. We are one with Christ. An example of this is in the conversion of Saul. R.C. Sproul points this out in his uh, book, Truths We Confess, which is an exposition of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Which is a whole lot, it's pretty close to the London Baptist Confession of Faith. They got one thing pretty wrong, but other than that, it's pretty good. Saul was headed to persecute and imprison Christians, right? That's what he was going to do. How did Jesus address it? I'm going to read it to you. Acts 9, 1 through 4 says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Well, who's the light? Christ is the light. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Christians? Is that what he said? No. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? We know he was headed to get, to get Christians and prison them. Bring them bound, right? Men or women. In this, Christ identifies the unity that we have with Him. He identifies the love that He has for His church. That is, it is, it is as if when somebody persecutes us, it's as if we are persecuting Him. We are one body. So Christ... Christ shows his unity with us and thus our unity with each other in that moment. We're one body. 
We are Christ's body. And he is the head of the church. We should love one another as if we truly believed that great biblical truth. Wouldn't that change how we treat people at times? If when in my interactions I thought to myself, this, this is the body of Christ I'm talking to. I want to close with Jesus' words to his disciples. Showing how desperately he believed this and wanted us to believe it. John 15, 12. This is my commandment. Does Christ have the right to give a commandment? Yeah. Why? Because he wrote them. Christ is God. He said, this is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. He's talking to his disciples. To the first Christians. To brothers who are fixing to, be, to start his church. And he's saying... This is what I command you to do. Love one another as I have loved you. He thought that that was pretty important. So let me pray for you. Father God, we are most humbled by your word. We ask that you would let brotherly love be something that we partake in daily. That it be at the forefront of our minds. That we would seek to know you more and love you better and desire to, to show you that we desire to be your children and to love each other. Help us to love each other. Help us to love the lost. Help the lost to see the gospel preached through us as we go through this world. Father, if there be any who hear this who are not in Christ, we ask that you would cut them to the heart that they may repent, trust in Christ, and the salvation of their souls. Sinner, run to Christ. He's your only hope. Father, we're so thankful. Bless each family here. In Christ's name, amen.